This is 50 miles per hour. Pop quiz, hot shot. There's a bomb on a bus. You're deeply nuts, you know that. Once the bus goes 50 miles an hour, the bomb is on. Stay on or get off. If it drops below 50, stay on or get off. It blows up. Oh darn. What do you do? You have a hair trigger aimed at your head. What do you do? What do you do? What do you do? I'm your host, Chris Tapley, and you're listening to an oral history of director Jan de Bont's 1994 summer blockbuster, Speed. Straight from the people who made it happen. Now, don't forget to fasten your seatbelts. Let's hit the road. All right, we're cruising right along here. I hope you're enjoying this journey so far. We're about a quarter of the way through. Now, this episode was originally meant to be a focus on the villain of Speed, Howard Payne, played by Dennis Hopper. But I found it kind of difficult to talk about Payne without also talking about the evolution of another character, Harry Temple. Jack Traven's partner on the LAPD SWAT team who meets an untimely demise at the end of the second act. Or, as he was originally called, Harry Sears. So I thought about making this a sort of maxi episode that folded all of that in together, and then I realized, you know what, this guy deserves his own space. So, now it's a two-parter. And we're going to spend today with actor Jeff Daniels, who would sign on, almost reluctantly, to star as Harry, who ended up with the less, I guess, hard-ass surname of Temple instead of Sears. We got into this a little bit in last week's episode, detailing the last-minute rewriting that whipped speed into camera-ready shape. A big part of this final push was evolving Harry past a concept that screenwriter Graham Yost had been clinging to for years. The reveal that Harry was the one holding the busload of passengers for ransom. You know, it was me all along. That kind of thing. Not quite a Scooby-Doo ending, but, you know, not far from the wheelhouse either. Though producers Walter Parks and Laurie McDonald did not recall being the ones to suggest that Graham move away from this conceit, that's nevertheless how Graham remembers it. And frankly, I'm still a little fuzzy on when this actually happened, even after last week's JFK-like immersion into the rewrites. Back and to the left. Back and to the left. In any case, here's what Graham had to say about it again. And then the biggest note, I'm sure you know, Harry was the bad guy, right? And so, and that happened around the time that Walter and Lori came in. I remember Walter saying, um, it's an interesting idea, what, what you were trying to do with Harry. He says, I don't know if it's gettable. But I don't think you should do it. I don't. I think we should just be one bad guy beginning to end. You know, the thing I've said in interviews is that my whole concern was I loved, um, you know, Hans Gruber so much that I wanted there to be a relationship between the bad guy and um, and the good guy, and there to be some history. Okay, now let's look at the screenplay description of Harry at the time. Harry Sears, tall, muscular, crew cut, the classic cop. Seemingly calm and easygoing, yet you know he could snap your neck like a twig. That doesn't exactly read like Jeff Daniels, does it? So, no, the search early on for this character was a little different. I don't know about you, but I read that description and I kind of jump to a specific actor in my mind. As it turns out, that's the actor Fox had in mind too. And according to former studio executive Jorge Saralegui, that's the one actor who turned speed down twice. We thought, okay, why don't we get a guy like Ed Harris for the villain. And he basically passed twice. I mean, he came in and met with Jan twice. And I think some of us. And he was very nice. 
And basically, he wasn't interested in being in a Keanu Reeves action movie. And in fairness to him, that's not like saying today he wouldn't be in John Wick. Although for all I know, he wouldn't be one. But you, you know what I'm saying? No, no. What he's saying is I'm not going to be in an action movie starring, you know, you know, Bill and Ted. So I, I, it makes complete sense, you know. And, and we wanted him because he'd be good, but also because he'd elevate the movie. Soon enough, of course, Harris, one of my favorite actors of all time, by the way, would star as the villain in the kind of film Speed would pave the way for, Michael Bay's The Rock. And, yeah, he would have crushed the role of a villainous Harry and elevated it from where it was on the page, which was sort of unconvincing. I'm looking at the script right now, and as I said in the last episode, Harry serves the kind of Joe Morton role of being on the flatbed truck alongside the bus throughout the second act. And again, he's revealed to be a little pissed off that he, as a second-generation cop, won't be promoted to captain thanks to Jack's recklessness in the elevator sequence at the beginning of the movie, which caused a hostage to be killed. And no, it's not because Jack shot the hostage. And by the way, the elevator thing is put together by a whole other nut job named Rudy, who dies in that sequence and is sort of confusingly used as a red herring throughout the film until the big Harry reveal. Anyway, here is an example of Harry's dialogue from this period, when the shit's going down in the third act. This is after he's accidentally outed himself to Jack as the bad guy by saying something he wouldn't have known unless he was the bad guy. You know, that old trick. Okay, this is just before the subway sequence kicks off. Harry says, Values, Jack. Do you know anything about values? I put 15 years of my life into becoming the best at what I do. The best. By the book. Right down the fucking line. I was supposed to be captain, you fuck. But you had to play cowboy. So this is what you get. And then from there, things basically progress through the subway sequence as they do in the movie, only it's Harry, not Howard, handcuffing Annie, well, she's still Darlene at this point, and fighting with Jack on the top of the subway car, and yes, getting his head ripped off. Eventually, that all gets weeded out at some point, and then Paul Atanasio and Joss Whedon take their cracks at fleshing out a new character that Graham has conjured, Howard Payne. Now remember, for a while, Harry was killed in the first act elevator sequence. That's when Jeff first got the script from his agent, remember? And he was less than enthused. And so they sent the script, and uh, I died in the elevator shaft. I, I, I was like page 22. I, I miss a step, fall, you know, 50 floors and die. And I told the agent, I said, the career's in trouble, but it's not in that much trouble. So forget it. They go, well, hang on. They're doing a rewrite. You die later. Okay. Well, I'll wait for that. And sure enough, I died later in the house, like page 80. I said, great, I'm in. Before that, like every other role, they were out to any and everyone who would consider it. And probably because the character had next to nothing going on in this iteration, no one was interested. People tend to blur this search with the Howard Payne search, of course, but I've heard Bill Pullman was someone they looked at here, which makes complete sense. In the end, sort of out of necessity on both sides, Jeff is who they ended up with. Jeff Daniels took the movie. I think basically he needed the job, but he wasn't thrilled. But yeah, he was not thrilled about being in this movie. It was a job. I, the career was floundering. And I, I just told the agent, I need something. I need to get something. And he said, well, Mark Gordon, I think it was Mark Gordon, right? Mark Gordon has this action movie with Keanu Reeves, Sandra Bullock. It's a small part, but let me call him on it. I said, okay, great. You know, I haven't done that. Keanu hadn't worked with him. And Sandy was still kind of, I mean, they were both kind of about to burst. 
you know, and this was the movie that kind of did it. So it was, I knew of them, but you know, they were reasons to do it. The money was whatever the money was. I was happy to get it. And, uh, and you know, next thing I know I'm wearing SWAT gear and Keanu and I are flying, you know, up and over a hill and coming in and landing and bursting into a building. I'm going, I don't know what I'm doing, but here I am. And there was a whole bunch of stuff on a bus that I, I had, I, that was just other people shooting. You know, I was either back in Michigan or back at the hotel wondering when I got to limp around the office again, you know, because apparently I had a, well, I got shot, didn't I? Yeah, I got shot. So I'm limping around on a shot leg. No big deal, Jeff. It's just, you know, shoot the hostage. One of the most famous things from the movie. <laughs> he really does have fuzzy memories about all of this. And look, I'm not judging. I mean, my guy was just looking to rebuild a career that had sort of hit the skids, and he was out to show the industry that he was a jack-of-all-trades. I got out of the gate great with Terms and Purple Rose with Woody, Something Wild with Jonathan Demme, and then I started doing independent movies. I'm a creature of off-Broadway, where you really try to, you know, the scripts are a little more challenging, and but not necessarily popular. Certainly not aimed at how many people want to see, you know, speed is aimed at, at everyone who wants a thrill ride. And I was doing scripts that were, could have been off-Broadway plays, indies. Nobody went to see them. Doesn't make them bad, just makes them, but nobody went to see them. You know, you're doing it for very little money. The budget is way down, but you love the script. And so I did like three or four of those in a row. And, you know, it just didn't, now that everything, all that uh, capital that I had bought in Hollywood, you know, with the first three or four or five movies had dissipated. Here is casting director Risa Brayman Garcia, who was up to her elbows in the search for this guy and later Howard Payne as well. And he was living like in Michigan and he didn't like to fly and he was not easy to access, you know, so... And I don't know if he was living in Michigan at that time, but he was living in Michigan a lot. And he was not a guy who was just like, hey, come in for a meeting in L.A. Like he was just not around. He had a family he was raising, wasn't interested in, you know, doing t t never to do TV. Like he was he was very much his own guy and very selective about what he did. Maybe he needed a paycheck. I don't know. I don't think we paid him a ton of money. I don't remember. But he wasn't there for that long. The idea was, and, and this was something we talked about a lot, was to have somebody in there that would surprise you, that you would never think would die. We aimed pretty high at certain with certain guys, and they said no because it was a very small part and they didn't want to get killed. But Jeff was at a great place. It, well, not great for him, maybe, but for us at a great place in his career where he would be recognizable to an audience and they would think, oh, he's a co-star in the movie and not expect him to be killed. And so when he was killed, it had the right amount of surprise and disappointment and heartbreak that you understood, like it really motivated the story. And I think at that point, again, because the ambition of the movie was, was about getting the best actors available, interested and affordable into these parts, it wasn't stupid, like, you know, I remember it was hard, but it wasn't like unrealistic to the point of stupidity. It was like, let's let it was a little, you know, stunt casting in that we wanted somebody in there who the audience would be would really be devastated and surprised by his death, but didn't have to be too ambitious. As it turned out, 1994 would be the year to turn things around for Jeff and not just because of speed. 
This is all jumping ahead a bit, but it's worth it for the context. Because Jeff would have an even bigger opportunity later in the year opposite a skyrocketing Jim Carrey in the Fairley Brothers comedy Dumb and Dumber. Funnily enough, playing yet another Harry. Gets worse, Lloyd. My parakeet, Petey. Huh? He's dead. Oh. oh, man, I'm sorry, Harry. What happened? His head fell off. His head fell off? Yeah, he was pretty old. After that, he was back. Here's Jeff talking about this entire stretch of 1994, and I'm just going to let him talk for a while because it's kind of great. Well, it was a pivotal year for me personally. Um, we had shot Speed. Must have been the, this was it must have been the previous year, the end of the previous year, summer, fall. Because by the time it was February, March, the career was still in a nosedive. So in March of '94, I went out to LA, and I, you know, I live in Michigan, and I never had to do this. But I'd been in Michigan eight years, and the career had started to stall and nosedive. And so now I got to go out to L.A., get a hotel room, and audition on five movies and land one of them. I need a job. And two of them really wanted me. One was a, a movie about divorced dads, and the other was Dumb and Dumber. And I really wanted to do Dumb and Dumber. I wanted to work with Jim. I was tired of trying to be a serious actor. You know, again, I'm coming off a movie where I died on page 22. Okay, 80, you know. I mean, if that you, I've got to do better. And I wanted to go comedy. I knew I could do it, but, you know, it's Jim Carrey. And at the time, Jim was Ace Ventura. That's all he was. He had shot a movie called The Mask, but it wasn't out yet. And so shortest version of I had agents trying to talk me out of doing Dumb and Dumber. It was like an intervention. We're not going to let you do this movie. I really wanted to work with Jim. They were offering me like a third of what the married, the divorced dad's movie was offering me. I said, I want to work with Jim. I want to change it up. It's my decision. I'm doing it anyway. And so, okay, good luck. And I went out to LA. We started shooting Dumb and Dumber, Colorado. And I remember in May, Jim went to Cannes over the weekend and then flew back after having seen mask premiere at Cannes, and it exploded and then we finished shooting i think in june right when speed is coming out and i'm just in that you know it's sandy and it's keanu and it's dennis hopper i'm just in it and that's a huge hit and then i get into the fall and then now we're doing promotion for dumb and dumber which is being released in december and the reviews were atrocious and were the number one movie in the country for six weeks. And Speed had just happened in the summer, and that would have been a big hit. And now here in December, you're in another big hit, and now you're hosting Saturday Night Live in January. In one year, that was a big, big turnaround. And it, and it, would have been, it wouldn't have worked had I not done Dumb, Dumb and Dumber. I, if I had not worked with Jim and across from Jim, you know, a comedic genius and held my own plus speed. As, as Nicholson said, you just bought yourself five years, you know, so that happened. Let's hear from director Jan DeBont this week. Here's what he had to say about casting and working with Jeff Daniels. 
Yeah, actually, uh, there was a, a, a really good reason that I wanted Jeff to play that part because it's like I was a little worried about Keanu because uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures, that was kind of a goofy movie. And so I had to get away from that very quickly. You know what I mean? I have to get the audience away from that idea. And I like Keanu because he has this kind of restlessness in him, kind of uh, really playful restlessness, but it's also like like an energy that is kind of hidden, that's always ready to come out, but but quite often at, at, at inopportune moments, which you don't want, you want it to be a little controlled. And I felt I needed an actor that had more experience and I needed a solo guy so that he could almost play off against, you know what I mean? And then without um, having to um, force himself. And that's the whole point with acting. Now, you never want to see somebody acting, acting. And Jeff can act without ever realizing that he's acting. And that is what, what Keanu really had to learn of him. We are the two luckiest guys in the world. You know what? We got the bad guy, and we didn't lose any civilians. Yeah, we're good. No, you were lucky. No, we were lucky. You better understand it. We were dealing with a total psycho, you know? This guy could have blown us up at any time. And I got a bullet in me. Six inches off the mark, and they're giving the medal to my wife. Eric, come on, man. I mean... We won, we got it. Do you listen? Do you ever, because I am not gonna be around to back you up, so you better start thinking. Guts will get you so far and then they'll get you killed. He's a beautiful actor and he's gotten to be more and more complex and interesting and, you know, and deeper and, you know, than anyone ever imagined really. So um, it's nice to have this as part of the history. I also did something wild. And, and he was in that, and that was a hard role to cast. And we went through a lot of people before ending up with Jeff. And, and again, just like so excited to see the acting journey he's been on all these years and how with age and time, he's just so brilliant. Dumb and Dumber was, I need to show people that I can go all the way over here with Dumb and Dumber. And then also do, whether it's Gettysburg or Speed, over here. If I can do that, I will create such a wide range that there are jobs in between there. And then in like 2002, I think it was, I did blood work with Clint Eastwood. And Clint told me, he goes, and Two Days in the Valley was another drama, an indie drama that nobody saw. But he saw it. And he said, if you can do Two Days in the Valley and you can do Dumb and Dumber, you can do this. And it was like, there it is. Proof. And I do just want to go back to this dying on page 80 thing for a second. Yeah, Harry dies. Not a hero's journey here. But I do think the way that moment is shot and edited is kind of badass. You remember Harry and the rest of the SWAT team are climbing into the windows of Howard Payne's house out near the airport. They found their scumbag. Then, as Harry glides past a wall decoration... A red light catches his eye. A bomb has been armed. He's dead. His whole team is dead. So the camera just settles on his face and allows Harry Temple to quietly die a noble death. Sure. None of which I thought about. That's what you got. That's what you guys get to do. You guys get to now go the moment of what a noble death. You know, great. Terrific. Run with it. Wonderful. 
It's like with theater, you know, you write a play. I write a lot of plays. You get to the end and the audience goes, what did you mean by this play? What are you trying to say? And your answer is, what do you think I was trying to say? Well, I think you were doing this, this, this that's great. I, don't, I disagree. I think you were doing this, that, or the other thing. Okay, that's valid too. There's no kind of manipulation to, you just want to give it to them, drop it in their lap, and let them let the bomb explode in their head, in their lap. So, noble death, sure. Right. But that certainly wasn't on the list of things when I was sitting in makeup that day. <laughs> okay, fine. But seriously, it's a badass death scene. And Jeff did bring something to the moment as an actor, which he's talked about before. Here is the answer to the trivia question, where do speed and jaws intersect? You're, it's one of those moments where you're going, how am I going to do this? You know, we got to make it look like it's happening for the first time. I had just crawled in a window with SWAT gear that, you know, I have to look as heroic as possible, which is hard to do when you, one leg's going in and then the SWAT gear and all that. I mean, it was just like going through a little hole. But I got over to the mark and I got to turn and look at the thermostat. And then I have to realize that that's really a timer for a bomb. Oh no, cut. Now you go outside and the house blows up. So how do I, as an actor, how do I pull that off? Do you surprise? Do you realize? Do you, you know, show and tell acting where you show everybody what you're thinking? Oh my God, no, boom. Or... As you're getting ready to shoot it, do you remember, and I do this, I'll stockpile things that other actors say on how they did this or did that, or you'll see movies and you'll steal from Merrill, or you'll steal, you'll steal from Pacino or De Niro, some moment they do. I mean, there's stuff that Al does in Dog Day Afternoon, and I'm just going, I'll take that, I'll take that, I'll take that. What's he doing there? Why is, why, you know, and then try to study the choice. But this, it was like a light bulb went off. And I had remembered an interview that Roy Scheider had done. And they asked Roy, Roy, how, my God, the moment when you saw, you're on the boat and you look down in the water and you see the shark. What were you thinking? How did you pull that off? What what a moment. Tell us about it. He goes, well, I made sure that when I turned and looked at the shark, that my cheek muscles were squinting my eyes just a little bit. And then when I saw the shark, I just dropped the cheek, cheek muscles. They're up, they're down. It's just like a, a cheek muscle exercise. So you put the thought in your head. But then as you turn to the thermostat, you've got just a little lift in the cheek, the cheek muscles, and you come around and you see it and you let them drop. Cut. So it really was kind of a technical, mechanical kind of let me steal from Roy Scheider. It worked for him. Good enough for Roy, good enough for me. And that's what I did. And I, I guess it makes the experience the audiences, you know, you, you learn, and, and this is my issue with method acting sometimes is that we don't really care how you're feeling about it internally, whether you're there 
on the only thing the audience cares about if they get there. What's the story? What do we have to make them feel in this moment? And we want them to go, oh, fuck. Oh, no. Now, I can play oh, fuck or oh, no. Or I can set it up so they do. You know, you want them to feel what he's feeling. And how? what do you have to do to get to that? And Roy Scheider's cheek muscle drop did that. Tragically, I don't think this beat actually made it into the movie. There is no perceptible cheek muscle drop. He comes in, tensed up, and we cut to him, I think maybe already unclenched. Jeff says he hasn't seen the movie since it came out, no big shock. So he can be forgiven for not realizing this, but hey, it's still a good story. Now look, I know Jeff saw this as just a job, and he of course wouldn't come close to this kind of movie again in his career, but I hope he appreciates that he really brought something to the film, and that it's kind of a fun little credit on his IMDb scroll. Be proud, Jeff. And like I told you, give the movie another look one of these days. It holds up. Oh, and by now, as the script is more or less locked in and production gears up, the character descriptions for both Jack and Harry have been crashed into a single efficient line. We see these two are a team, and that when they move, Jack leads. I want to close this week by noting that today is September 4th, 2023. Cameras began rolling on speed on September 1st, 1993. So, happy 30th anniversary to the production of Speed. But hang on. We still need a bad guy. Next week on 50 Miles Per Hour. He didn't cast this role until three days before we started shooting the actor. We were already in production and shooting on the freeway. Me talking to the studio as buses are flying by, going, well, how about him? Well, how about him? It's time to build the perfect foil. We chart the journey of Speed's twisted bomber, Howard Payne, and the last-minute casting of screen icon Dennis Hopper. We went from person to person to person to person, and then we had the list of all the great character actors out there, and even some of them passed. And Dennis was the only actor that we could all agree on. You'll also hear, for the first time anywhere, how the role very nearly went to a different screen icon. And trust me, it was close. Now, he would have done it. He passes because he says, I have to have two weeks off. Just take a break. And we couldn't do it. It, it was already waiting too long. That's how close it came. All of that and more next week, right here on 50 Miles Per Hour. Thanks so much for listening. 50 Miles Per Hour is written, produced, and edited by yours truly, Chris Tapley. You can find us on Twitter at 50MPHPod. I'm at Chris Tapley, that's Chris with a K. You can also catch every episode and more at our website, 50mphpodcast.com. If you dug the show, please like and subscribe and do all the things. We'll see you next time.